is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Record milk prices aren't turning around the fall in milk production in Australia. We'll have a look at those numbers on the program shortly. You can tell us why you think that is the case. Send a text to 0467 842 722. Speaking of things on the slide, the wheat price is on the slide as well as is canola. We'll go through some of those figures and talk about what's happening there on the program today too. Plus developing the next generation of farm equipment. So what it's doing is using computer vision, determining the different species of weeds against the crop that you're growing. So it chooses not to attack the crop, but then selectively puts a hoe down at the right location to manage the weeds only. And it also can do, um, as an integrated weed management solution, it can do spraying or mechanicals futuristic farm equipment happening right now that research is happening right now and we'll go through some of those details later on in the program right now it's rural news time with emma field emma G'day Warwick, making rural news today. A great season in areas of Western Queensland have producers claiming it's one of the best years ever. The Banks family recently completed one of their biggest shearing programs ever, which saw 25,000 merino fleeces go into 600 bales. Ben Banks says it was the icing on the cake for what's been a brilliant year on the Blackhall property. Yeah, it's probably probably the best position we've been in coming into summer for, for a lot of years. Um, we obviously had great autumn rain, great winter rain and, and great spring rain. Um, so you've got, we've got great, great feed hanging on from, from the winter um, and the summer grasses have started. They certainly, certainly need some, some rain over summer, but, um, but yeah, we're, we're in a great position at the moment. The stock, stock couldn't look better. My father's been here his whole life and he, he thinks it's the best the stock have, have ever looked. So, yeah, as far as the sheep go coming into, the rams have just come out. So hopefully we've had a great joining and, and line up for a good year next year. Mm. A key freight railway line between Perth and Sydney is set to remain closed for another week after floodwaters washed out parts of the track. It's the second time the track has closed this year and again it's created headaches for farmers who ship product between the states. Eggs are one such item that's in short supply. Western Australia gets about 25% of its eggs from the eastern states and President of the WA Commercial Egg Producers Association, Ian Wilson, says supermarket shelves are running low. We always have a, uh, an amount of eggs uh, come across to WA every week to, uh, to supplement uh, what's on the shelves. And those eggs could be sourced uh, from as far uh, north in, of Australia as Queensland, down through New South Wales and Victoria. And with the, the rail line uh, in New South Wales impacted, that's stopping the flow of eggs uh, coming across the country. It's not only eggs that are impacted, there's a lot of other goods, even dry goods. And I know that my wife went to the pet store and they said, well, we haven't got cat biscuits for the next uh, month or so. Normally around this time of year, fish looking to travel up the Darling River to breed are stopped at the main weir at Menindi in far west New South Wales. But with all six gates of the weir fully opened, in anticipation of further flooding this week, a big fish migration and mingling is expected. New South Wales DPI Fisheries Senior Manager Ian Ellis says the rare event allows for major fish movement. This gives them the first chance in about 10 years, I think, for fish to move from 
basically below the main weird or above, which essentially means moving from the southern basin back into the northern Murray-Darling Basin. It's pretty exciting if you're a fish nerd like me. A lot of people probably don't get excited by this sort of stuff, but I think it's pretty cool. It means the fishing below the weir, downstream of the weir, won't be as good for the next couple of weeks or so, but um, from a fish perspective, it's really good. So we actually get some mixing of fish from the north and the south. And the other thing, which is a bit nerdy, but normally... Even if the weirs are only slightly closed, downstream passage of sort of baby fish, usually if they go through a partially closed gate of that weir, they get mushed up in the turbulence and the velocities and the pressure changes and find it hard to move from upstream to downstream. So with everything fully open, we've actually not just got upstream movement, but we've got fish, particularly baby cod and yellow belly from, from upstream in Lake Weatherall, have the opportunity now to move straight through to the lower Darling Barker. And finally, the president on Passion Fruit Australia says growers will be paying catch-up for the next few years after a perfect storm of weather killed large amounts of vines this year. Dennis Chance says in an average year, growers produce about 4,800 tonnes of fruit, 60% from Queensland, 35% from New South Wales and 5% from Western Australia. But this year, it's been tough. It's been a very challenging year, particularly in a lot of our growing areas. The main growing areas are the Tweed Valley, the Sunshine Coast, Bundaberg area and then far north Queensland. Most of those areas have had extraordinary amounts of rain, so fungal diseases, not being able to get on to spray, too much water, weather was too cold. So yeah, I think it's been the perfect storm actually against the industry this year. A lot of crops have been totally wiped out, so we'll be playing catch-up for the next couple of years. So I think production is probably, particularly of the purple varieties that we get in the south. I think there's more production of the Panama varieties which are grown up in North Queensland. Their production hasn't been as affected so the market supply for the purples is probably going to be a little bit tight over the next year or two but we're working very hard to get back to uh, what we were before. And for today, Warwick, that's Rural News. That's fascinating. I, mean, I didn't realise the different growing regions of the different colours of passion fruits. Um, good to hear. Thanks very much for Rural News there. Coming up on the Country Hour, we're going to talk dairy a little bit in the program too. But if you are going up and back of your paddocks harvesting grain, we've got an interesting discussion on the wheat price slide coming up later in the program too. You can tell us what's happening with both of those things by sending a text 0467842722 to send us a text. Because higher prices for dairy, both at the farm gate and also on supermarket shelves, have not been enough to arrest a 6.5% drop in production for the season to October. That's according to Dairy Australia's latest Situation and Outlook report, which has been released this morning. It comes at a time when consumers are more price sensitive and production in the Northern Hemisphere is also ramping up. However, Dairy Australia's Industry Insights and Analysis Manager, John Droppett, told Peter Somerville seasonal conditions are still the biggest wildcard for dairy over the next few months. One of the manifestations, I think, of the, the shortfall in, in milk production here in Australia that we're seeing um, you know, starting to emerge is, um, you know, we're seeing price increases for milk step ups at, at the farm gate. Um, you know, that's at a time where um, global markets are drifting. So, you know, while there's some support domestically from the domestic market, you know, obviously uh, uh, higher dairy prices on the shelf means more uh, more money in the supply chain, which does help support that farm gate price. Uh, I think the increases in farm gate price we're seeing really do, um, you know, really do allude to that uh, tightness in milk supply. So farmers are, uh, are profitable, but of course, there's some real... Um, Real challenges that have defined 2022, so high costs being one of them, uh, staff shortages being another, and on top of that now, uh, through spring, we've had the wet conditions and the flooding. So uh, from a farm perspective, 
uh, that's thrown some uh, you know some extra curveballs out, especially for the farmers that are directly impacted. Uh, but of course, it's impacting feed prices. For example, for those farmers who aren't even you know directly impacted by flooding, and and of course the wet conditions creating challenges too. Uh, so we we looked at that in the report, and also the consumer side of things. You know, we're seeing more and more data around the the CPI and the. Uh, you know, increasing cost of of everything, but uh, but dairy is very much a part of that um, that increasing cost of living, and um, trying to unpack some of the consumer behaviours in response to that. How are dairy farmers negotiating all of that? How is uh, their production tracking? So production's down around six and a half percent for the season to date. So uh, you know, you've got the hangover of the, the the floods in New South Wales and Queensland, and then uh, obviously been a wet winter across those northern states. And now, you know, a wet spring um, down south. So, so milk production is lagging behind, uh, lagging behind last season. Uh, we had the floods uh, again in October, give it a knock around in, in northern Victoria especially. Um, so we will be, uh, we, we're going to finish this season below last season, I think uh, goes without saying. Uh, we've seen increase in culling, um, you know, it's because you know, farmers navigating those wet conditions on farm and, and trying to reduce um, stocking rates. And of course, again, the, the staff um, challenges have, have you know, stopped farmers who might otherwise be expanding from, uh, from chasing that as well. Not all dairy regions have been flooded. Does that mean that the wet weather and the flooding have hit harder in some regions and uh, others are, are stable? Is that 6.5% um, across the board or are you seeing that more prolifically in some areas than others? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, it, it's not across the board, um, but certainly, um, you know, similar sort of magnitudes across the Victorian regions, which, you know, which are around two thirds of the country's milk and uh, and Tassie as well in, in the same ballpark. Um, you know, and, and Tassie sort of had, you know, similar again to, to Victoria, started the season, um, you know, sort of behind the eight ball weather-wise, those, those challenges coming through. And then, you know, they had their own floods um, in October as well, which, which knocked things around a little bit. And then, and the critical part is that, you know, they happened right at the peak of production. Um, outside of Victoria and Tassie, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, South Australia and WA um, looking much better. Um, Queensland and New South Wales looking worse, um, you know, again, on the, on the back of those earlier season floods. And now international factors are a big part of this report as well. How does the situation here in Australia compare globally? The international scene is really... Um, really become a bit more nuanced in the last few months. You know, we've had a really, um, you know, risky kind of 2022 with all, you know, the war in Ukraine in particular. Um, of course, you know, China's going through its, um, you know, sort of reckoning with COVID and that's uh, that's impacting demand. Um, or from a supply perspective, what we've started to see in the last few months is Northern Hemisphere has been growing, uh, but New Zealand's dealing with many of the same issues we are, including, you know, the staffing challenge. And so um, couple that with, uh, you know, a slow start to the season or wet start to the season in some parts. New Zealand's well behind last last year as well. That is Dairy Australia's John Droppett speaking there with Peter Somerville. Now, Lincoln George has sent a text saying, Hi, Was, everyone is getting older and with the price of land now, the next generation can't come through. Uh, the younger generation needs 40% deposits uh, to buy a farm now. Cheers, Lincoln George. Because as you've just been hearing from Dairy Australia, another 6.5% drop in milk production for this season to October. And it's not like the years prior uh, there wasn't falling milk production as well. What do you think is happening there? Mark Billing is on the line, I think, uh, President of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria. Hi, Mark Billing. G'day, Warwick. How are you going? You're not bogged again, are you? 
No, no, thank you for uh, reminding me of that. But uh, the day is young, so we'll, we'll see how we go this afternoon. I'll talk to you more about that in a moment. We've just heard about the fall in milk production in the figures from Dairy Australia. Uh, a lot of that being put down to flooding in, in certain regions for dairy, but obviously not all dairy regions have been flooded. What, what does that number, the 6.5% fall this year, mean to you as a farmer? Well, look, as a farmer, it's it's disappointing, I suppose, that the milk pool is shrinking even further. But I think, um, uh, as John's pointed out, there's a number of factors. And I think there's a factor that's sitting in there that I think that we need to quantify a little bit better. And that's the availability and the skill set of, of, of our labour force or the, the ability for us to get labour on farm. Um, because I think that's actually having a fairly big impact as well, as um, herds are or some dairy farms anyway, reducing herd numbers to um, sort of combat the, the availability of labour. So but, people um, are literally setting their herds up for a right size for the labour they can get rather than the to maximising the amount of, of cows they could could have on farmland to produce the most milk. Yes, I think that that's definitely happening. Look, it's happened um, here in, in our business, um, just sort of right-sizing our business so that... Um, you know, when we've got a labour issue, it's it's generally the owner or the, the manager that's got to step in, and um, yeah, it, it it's just adding to the, the workload. And look, the last well through COVID and and even the the season that we're going through at the moment with being pretty wet and and flooded, um, it, it's putting a fair bit of pressure on a lot of farms. What's at risk here? I suppose that we're talking years of of a slide in milk production and a slide in the amount of people producing milk producing dairy products in Australia. Mm. Are you worried about, you know, things like the the genetics and a critical mass of people with the right skills to produce milk and all the extra services that are provided to the industry because you're, you're losing size? Yeah, look, I, I think the size has got a little bit to do with it. But I think, um, you know, um, there's different business systems out there, farming systems, um, low input, high input, um, Farms, a lot of farm businesses are setting themselves up for the future as well. Um, so whether that's um, more techno- technology on farm, um, cut carry systems and barn systems in Northern Victoria are sort of becoming a bit more commonplace. Um, so there, there are a lot of dairy farm businesses that are setting themselves up for the future. And um, whilst we're seeing a reduction in the size of the milk pool, I think the domestic market is actually supporting a good milk price. And I'm sure John would have talked about that as well, that um, the domestic market has sort of um, given us a bit more support than we've seen in the past. So, um, Is that the I, silver lining here? Um, milk and other dairy products on the supermarket shelf are actually going up in price, something the industry fought for for a very long period of time. That's right. And, and look, there, there is that. And I think the other, the other um, silver lining in this story too is that um, milk consumption or dairy consumption in Australia has has pretty much um, stayed put. It hasn't decreased like it has in other in other countries. Are you going to have to... There's a text here at 0467-842-722 saying $20,000 an acre in West Gippsland. If you can fo- afford that, you don't need to milk cows. Is this one of the problems f- for dairy? Traditionally, it was clo- produced mainly in Victoria and, and close to uh, big centres uh, as well. Will dairy, if it is to grow again, have to expand into, say, traditional non-dairying regions uh, and prove to people there that it's a, an in, an industry that they should get involved in? Yeah, look, I think they you know the, the twenty thousand dollars a hectare or an acre rather in in Gippsland is just showing that the, the land use 
is being expanded. Um, with with all of the or nearly all of the agricultural commodities doing well at the moment, there's a fair bit of competition for for land. And as my granddad used to say, they're not making it anymore. Um, so the the land use um, for for a lot of dairy businesses going forward will be um, maximising what we can actually produce off the land that we have now, um, and doing that through. Um, better genetic selection for, for our uh, for our dairy herds, and look, there's there's other options, but there is no doubt there is pressure on on the land use, um, and it, even here in Southwest Victoria, um, the the land is being looked at by sheep, by beef and, and dairy as well, and and the added one for us that's coming over the hill for some areas too is um, the plantation companies are potentially coming back into that land mix again too. So it doesn't bode well for dairy's future to to arrest the the decline. Look, I think longer term, I'm still reasonably confident um, that there there is a profitable pathway for dairy farmers. Um, is it going to be easy? Probably not. But I think it's more getting down to those one percenters. Um, and look, it's probably been like that for for a number of years now. That the one percenters actually are making a fair difference in our profitability. Um, and look, our profitability and our production gets hit um, when we have weather events like we've had over this spring, um, with the flooding in Northern Victoria and elsewhere, um, and damp conditions have just really put a lot of pressure on homegrown fodder production. Um, and then having to go to market in, in a market that's shrinking and, and the cost is increasing dramatically with hay and grain. Yeah, and just on that, does dairy need other commodities to go poorly for a while to to get an edge? I suppose there's still record milk prices being paid. You've still got high costs, I understand mm. that. But in the last few weeks, we've seen beef, lamb, wool, and we're about to talk about wheat all being on a price slide. Do things yeah. like that help dairy, even though it's not good for some of your farming colleagues out there? Well, that's right. Uh, so if I, I, I take off my broader agricultural hat and put on the dairy farmer hat, yeah, we we generally would like to see more um, grain downgraded into feed grain, um, and that's sort of the supply and demand uh, dynamic there. So hopefully, you know, it, grain's gone up um, about 20%, or feed grain to dairy farmers about 20% over the last 12 months. So that's added to our costs. Um, from a dairy perspective, we'd love to see that 20% come off. Um, and maybe even more, but um, yeah, we, we still need to have longer term. We still need to have grain farmers profitable because we, we still need them um, to produce milk. Yeah, Mark Billing, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. No worries at all. President of the UDV, Mark Billy, t- Mark Billing, I should say, taking you through his thoughts on what the situation and outlook means for his industry. Your thoughts are coming in on the text line too, and it is interesting. Uh, this one says, well, exactly what we're talking about. Beef prices will have to drop right off and dairy stay strong to bring those farms back to dairy, says one person on the text. Wendy at Tourist says, hi, was uh, the wet weather has affected my production hugely. Also, fertiliser and feed costs have impacted. I'm worried that if production drops too much, we will lose stainless steel and competition on price, says Wendy as well. Um, and MG says, was dairy farming is hard work and hard to make a profit. The average farmer age is increasing, labour is short, inputs are up. Retiring farmers are switching to beef or selling following land price increases to beef and sheep farmers as those commodities have been strong for a long time. Small starter farms are no longer around for young dairy farmers. Fix that, mate, and you'll have a strong industry and arrest the decline. Mind you, for those of us who stay in it, we should do all right.
says MG. Thank you very much for all of your thoughts coming in. We'll move away from Gary for a moment. I'll get back to some more of your texts in a moment. But let's talk power at the moment, an issue that has been important to you for most of this year. A key terminal station proposed for central Victoria to connect renewable energy projects to the power grid may now be relocated after what the proponent calls significant community feedback, as Jane McNaughton reports. The terminal station is proposed to be 60 acres in size and is necessary to connect the controversial Western Renewables link that will transport renewable energy into Melbourne to the Snowy Hydro in New South Wales. Both projects propose that high-capacity 500 kilovolt transmission lines run through regional Victorian farmland. But now due to community outrage, investigations are being conducted to assess if the site should be moved from its current proposed location north of Ballarat at Mount Prospect further west in the state to Walgana or Warbra. Fifth-generation potato farmer Kane Richardson lives next door to the current proposed terminal site in Mount Prospect and says although it's encouraging community feedback has been listened to, the decision to investigate other locations so late in the process shows a lack of planning by the Australian energy market operator and proprietor Osnet Services. The terminal station turns your food bowl into a honeypot for more renewable projects. I don't disagree with renewable energy, but what I do disagree with is disrupting highly valuable, highly productive farmland and the current infrastructure that has been put in place to irrigate that and set up over many years with the assistance of government in recent times on efficiencies. I just see it's a slap in the face to the farmer to go and invest in irrigation technology and then the next year be told that he's going to have a terminal station next door or a power line easement running right through the middle of his newly set up irrigation system. Do you feel vindicated now that Osnet says they are listening and AMU says they are listening to community feedback? Yes, it's it's a positive step from their perspective. They're um, waking up to the fact, even though it's taken nearly two and a half, three years, they are waking up to the fact that this isn't going to work through this Central Highlands region and uh, it is a pleasing change in tone. Does the fact the terminal station's not going to be right next to your house make you feel better about the project? Uh, not really. The whole township of Newland was going to suffer from that terminal station, but the problem is someone else is going to have to deal with it somewhere along the way. Ideally, if they can get it in the scope of an area with very little housing within the vicinity, because it is known that they shouldn't be any closer than seven to eight k's to a township because there is uh, effects on electronic equipment and houses and the, those sort of things. So there's been no decision made to change the proposed route through this community anyway. Would not having the terminal station make you feel better about having the power lines? No. The simple fact is they're going well out of their way to come through this area with the power lines. It's a Greenfields power line easement. It's going to be a very big headache for them to uh, try and push through this area and when they're not exploring uh, world-class technology and undergrounding you're going to have resistance from most communities I would imagine. The energy does need to get from the wind farms in West Victoria to Melbourne though. Is undergrounding the only option that you think the community would be comfortable with? I think the uh, table should be wiped clean and the honest figure put down and a figure that includes the impact to communities, impact to biodiversity and the impacts to the financial health of economies such as tourism and the likes. Everywhere around the world at the moment they are pulling down overhead transmission lines of this magnitude and putting them down underground 
because the visual amenity aspects in tourism areas, because of the resilience problems that they're finding with overhead power lines through bushfires and extreme weather. We had an instance in South Australia not too many weeks ago where another tower went down. These costs all end up back at the consumer through cost pass through on repair. Why not get this right? And although the bill may be slightly higher at the moment, you build resilience into the grid for not just 40 years, up to 100 years. And you also improve your national security by doing it. I've heard from some farmers that the area in Mount Prospect where this terminal station is proposed to be was pretty severely affected by flooding in recent rain events that happened across Victoria. Have you had any indication from Osnet or AMO that that was a contributing factor to investigating alternate sites? AMO came out and saw it with their own eyes and were gobsmacked. Um, They were with another local group representative and the comments were disbelief of how someone could plan to put that terminal station on a waterway by which to make it secure site would need a hell of a lot of earthworks and earth carted into flatten out. Look, we just hope there's a good resolve and it benefits all communities. There's no two ways about it. We need as much renewable energy hooked into the grid the way coal power stations are closing and uh, it would be in the best interest of the planning authorities to uh, seriously consider undergrounding. That's Newland Potato Farmer and Chairman of the Kingston and District Power Alliance, Kane Richardson, speaking there to Jane McNaughton. AEMO, the uh, proponent of the site, said in a statement that as the investigations are ongoing, there has been no decision made yet to change the proposed location north of Ballarat. You're listening to The Country Hour. We'll talk wheat prices up after the weather, but to help us get there, let's find out what's making news around Victoria this lunchtime with Rio Davis. Rio. G'day Warwick. Making news around regional Victoria, the Supreme Court has ordered stricter restrictions at logging coops to protect an endangered tree species. The court found Vic Forest's operations in the central highlands, north-east of Melbourne, had routinely damaged and destroyed tree jibung populations. The court ordered larger protection areas around the trees located in logging coops. Vic Forest's operations are currently paused due to a separate Supreme Court order requiring stronger protection protection of native gliders. The Mildura Incident Control Centre is warning people not to drive on levees and around road closure signs as river levels rise. The latest information from the Bureau of Meteorology says the peak of the flood crisis will hit Mildura in a couple of weeks at 38.3 metres and waters will remain into the new year. Incident Controller Russell Manning says despite the flooding being an historic event that people want to photograph, driving on levees is compromising their integrity and risks people's homes. Police say they've broken up a local drug trafficking syndicate in northern Victoria. Ten people have been arrested in Shepparton, Kayala and Tatura after a long-running investigation. Charges including trafficking a large... Charges include trafficking a large commercial quantity of methylamphetamine. Police say their investigations focused on the distribution of large quantities throughout the Shepparton region. 
And Victoria's Independent Education Union says Ballarat Clarendon College did not consult with it about its internal probe into bullying allegations. Clarendon College has released interim findings from its own investigation, exonerating long-time Principal David Shepherd from accusations. Union Assistant Secretary Simon Schmidt says the school did not contact its members through its internal review. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Rio. Rio Davis there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. A couple of your thoughts on the dairy industry still coming in and the decline in milk being produced in Australia. Neil says one critical question is the decline will result in less milk for export products. If this falls, the large factories will close. Well, there has been a flip already, Neil. We used to be export dominant as a dairy industry. I think we're, we're largely domestic dominant now with with a smaller element of export. We should talk more about that in the uh, coming weeks and we'll try and do that for you uh, this one says dairy is a high rainfall industry being totally devoured by development as well uh, thank you very much for your texts uh, there is one here too saying dairy australia is still very much out of touch with the real world at farm level farmers are profitable in certain areas but only just if the milk price falls in any way then the industry is dead in the water milk pool decline will accelerate making this year's decline insignificant keep those texts coming 0467 842 plus we'll talk wheat prices coming up in the program right now though Let's find out what's happening weather-wise around our state on a pretty cloudy day in my seat in northern Victoria. Wonder where what it's like for you. Alana Cherney can tell us, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Alana. Good afternoon. How's it going? Cloudy day today? Yes, it has been uh, mostly cloudy or, or cloud increasing across much of the state, but so far it has been mostly dry. That's set to, to change this afternoon. We're expecting some showers and thunderstorms to start to develop in central and eastern parts this afternoon and into the evening. And we also have uh, some showers set to um, uh, extend from the southwest later today as we've got a, a cold front moving through the state as well, How uh, much rain is of... going to be in, in those falls across the state? So generally, uh, for southern parts, we're generally looking at about zero to five millimetres. However, in eastern parts, uh, generally Gippsland, more like five to 15 or 20, and we could see a few isolated higher, t- higher totals uh, with thunderstorms as well. Uh, brilliant. And, and much else happening today? Yeah, so behind that change, we're looking at some pretty cool air. So could even see some snow flurries above the Alpine Peaks, and that snow level is set to drop to about 1,200 metres tomorrow. So really quite cold. And with that, we're looking at temperatures around uh, 10 to 12 degrees below average tomorrow. Uh, I will also mention um, that with that change, we do have uh, some windier conditions coming through. So that means that we have uh, some high fire danger ratings today through the Mallee, Wimmera and Northern Country, and that will remain tomorrow for the Mallee. And we could see um, some windy conditions in other parts of the state as well, uh, including remaining um, in the far east into tomorrow. But generally, tomorrow and Friday, we're looking like an easing trend in terms of those showers and really just that cool weather being the main story. On Saturday, uh, things will start to warm up and we'll have a few light showers about the west, but the real uh, change day and day of interest will be Sunday where we've got a trough passing through the state. That's likely to bring 
showers and potentially thunderstorms to much of the state. Uh, there is still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we're looking at turtles of up to about 10 millimetres. However, we could see areas um, of 10 to 20 um, and some isolated higher turtles as well. Uh, but as I mentioned, there is still a fair bit of uncertainty around that. So you keep an eye out and for things as we get closer to that day. Did you say snow earlier, even at this time of year, Alana? Yes, yes, I did. Uh, so tonight and into tomorrow will be the main ones to watch for snow. Um, as I mentioned, it really just is quite a cold air mass coming through later tonight. So snow level getting down to about 1,200 metres in the east. Wow, snow in December, white Christmas, here we come. Uh, <laughs> uh, Warnings-wise, uh, is there much we should keep an eye out for? So in terms of those warnings, uh, we do have a sheep grazier warning current for later tonight and into tomorrow morning with that cold and, and windy weather, um, and that's the main one for now. No worries. Uh, anything else even further out in the forecast we should keep an eye on as well, Alana? So probably following that change from Sunday and into Monday, looks like we'll be returning to some more of this cool weather. So if you're looking for a hot day, uh, you'll probably have to, to, to be patient. <laughs> will do, will do. Who said it's summer anyway? Alana Cherney, thank you so much for the update. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Alana Cherney, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the forecast there and even snow in the forecast in December got relatives that have gone overseas to try and find a white Christmas. Little, little did they know they should have just stayed here. Wheat prices next here on The Country Hour. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Yeah, there's been more swings in wheat markets in 2022 than you'll see on the cricket pitch in what is proving to be a very volatile year for the commodity. Wheat prices have cooled significantly this week, but ups and downs have almost become the norm as major global and local events send prices in different directions almost daily. Andrew Whitelaw from Episode 3 had a chat to me earlier about what's happening to the market this week. Look, this is, I guess this comes back to that fundamental supply and demand. Uh, we've, we've seen wheat prices in recent weeks falling, both both locally but also globally as well. So I reckon we start at the global level. You know, we had this issue around the Ukrainian grain export corridor, which there was concerns that that might not get extended. However, the Russian government has come to the table and grain is getting exported from Ukraine uh, and Russia. Uh, and that has sort of alleviated a lot of the concerns on a global level. But I think locally, uh, we're facing a bit of an issue of a bit of a tsunami of grain uh, at the moment. And basically what we're seeing is a market where farmers hadn't really sold that all that much throughout the year. And that might have been a good reasons around the fact that it's wet, didn't know what we're going to get, didn't know what the quality was going to be like. But what that results in is that we've ended up with all this grain coming onto the market roughly at the same time. And um, it's basically, it puts a bit of pressure on prices and prices are dictated by supply and there's a lot of supply coming on the market at the same time. You know, there's no, there's no fear of missing out from, from many of the buyers. And so globally, how far are prices falling day to day at the moment? Like we've seen, we've seen reasonable uh, falls in the last couple of days. So I think in the last four sessions or something, uh, we've been about 25 Aussie dollars down on, on the spot Seabot wheat contract. Uh, which is a considerable fall, but you know we've seen a market in the last year that's just been pretty crazy. Um, we, we've seen back in March volatility that was just rampant. You know, it was 
probably the second most volatile period since the 70s on a monthly basis. And uh, look, we've seen big swings all throughout the year. And uh, and this is, you know, we've seen the market coming down to pressure. And uh, yeah, $25 uh, in the last three sessions up until today. So whether movements up or down for 2022, uh, wheat prices have in particular been quite volatile. Oh, massively volatile. That, that's to be expected when you've got a major conflict in uh, in the Black Sea region. And, um, you know, one thing to be aware of is the term volatility can be misused. And uh, a lot of people use volatility to, when they talk about market going up or the market going down very fast. Well, it's not that. It's the market moving up and down is, is volatility. And that's what we've seen is, is, is large swings in prices. And, it, you know, <laughs> It's a concerning thing for farmers to understand when is the time to sell when the market can can turn around on a on a dime pretty quickly. It's at times it seems worse than Bitcoin. And really, at the moment, that must be concerning to farmers because harvest is happening in most of the grain growing regions in Australia. What does this mean locally? Look, we've seen we've again we've seen that sort of uh, a lot of concerns about the quality of the crop. Um, the quality is going to be overall poor. And so that has meant the farmers you know, have to be looking generally at the lower grades, if we look at it holistically. And uh, uh, there's going to be less of that sort of high protein, high protein sort of wheat, which, we, which we're starting to see in terms of the price spreads. You know, if we look at the lower grades, you know, some of those prices as a, as a relative value are some of the lowest in you know, over a decade. And so, so that is a bit of a concern for farmers, especially when you've got high labour costs, uh, high chemical costs, high fertiliser costs, high diesel costs, and also a really frustrating harvest where you're going to probably get bogged multiple times. Have the prices of canola or barley moved in a similar fashion this year? Yeah, some, some of the fashions we're seeing um, basically a bit of harvest pressure on, on canola and barley. Like if we look at canola, we've seen about $60 odd over the last month coming out of it at a global and local level. But canola is an interesting one because it can be moved a lot by things like crude oil. Because crude oil has come under pressure. There's concerns about global recession, which, which plays into that oil seed market. Um, so there's a lot of factors moving the market at the moment that are you know, to do with the actual grain itself, but also external factors like that wider wider sort of macroeconomic environment. Yeah, so just before we say goodbye to you, Andrew Whitelaw, what are the things to watch in a volatile market, particularly for grain growers? Look, I think the key thing that I think is if prices are good and you've got some some confidence of producing a crop, you've got to take advantage of it, even if it's only a small amount. And I think, look, at the end of the day, not many farmers are using pools anymore, but I think farmers can run their own pool of their own grain and just average out. You're never going to get hit the top of the market and you definitely don't want to hit the bottom of the market. But if you can average out little and often, do small contracts, do them often and just average out throughout the year. But don't leave yourself to the last minute. Don't be a forced seller. That's Andrew Whitelaw from episode three, a marketing commodities firm, speaking about what's happening to wheat prices both globally and locally, and a bit of other information there for you as well. If you're a grain grower going up and back at the moment, harvesting your crop, I'd be interested to know not only what you think about that, but what you can do to manage that. Send us a text, 0467 842 722. While we talk about the 
Next level technology that could be coming to a farm near you. Robots equipped with sucker cups that can pick capsicums in a greenhouse. Others that can chip or spray weeds in the field, tell when a watermelon is ripe or even help pollinate, pollinate tomatoes growing in a greenhouse. They're all applications that the robotics team from the QUT Centre for Robotics are working on. Jennifer Nichols went and spoke to senior lecturer Chris Leonard about the work that was being done. So this is part of our research vertical farm lab. So what we're doing is researching growing crops in vertical farming systems and being able to interact with them using robotics. Uh, So we've got a custom robot that can move to different locations but also uh, use computer vision and AI to estimate the maturity of cherry tomatoes in this case but we're also growing strawberries, capsicums and kale as well. And we're also designing different robot tools that can harvest these fruits as well. And I can see a machine there that's the robot that's been harvesting capsicums by whacking them with a suction cup and then pulling them off. I wouldn't say whacking. (laughs) I'd say gently attaching the suction cup so it doesn't damage the fruit. Uh, And then it actually uses a cutting tool uh, and cuts off at the peduncle so you get a nice quality fruit uh, off the plant. And the vision that we're watching here with your field trials, with your spray machine, Mm. that's such a job, isn't it, to try to teach a robot what is friend and foe for the farmer in In their particular application. That's hoeing the ground as well. Yeah, so it's selectively managing weeds. So what it's doing is using computer vision, determining the different species of weeds against the crop that you're growing. So it chooses not to attack the crop, but then selectively puts a hoe down at the right location to manage the weeds only. And it also can do, um, as an integrated weed management solution, it can do spraying or mechanical. So the idea was to move closer to uh, herbicide-free weed management systems using robotics. The mechanical hoe is very interesting. How effective is it? Uh, So... I wasn't on that research on the mechanical effectiveness, but we do have a paper that looked at um, how effective it was. Uh, In terms of just comparing a trial on not controlling weeds to controlling weeds with that system, the weeds density was reduced by 90% uh, from my memory. And here's the tomato trial that you were talking about, machines coming on and off the rails that are running between the rows of hydroponically grown tomatoes? Yeah, and so you can see here the challenge is to navigate around its environment and it uses uh, laser scans and 3D cameras and does the obstacle avoidance and then it uses those 3D cameras to detect where the pipe rails are, align itself with those pipe rails and drive on and off. And there's a bit of finesse that we've been playing around with making sure that that's quite reliable. You can see a few times it actually has to back up, adjust and go back on. But we found that it was quite uh, robust um, to different scenarios in the end. What sort of applications in there could you have? Uh, So the first application was looking at tomato pollination. But there's a lot of interesting things we can think about in the future, especially around crop monitoring. If you can autonomously navigate a greenhouse, you can actually create a map of the greenhouse and actually collect data of the plants as you navigate. So if you can produce a map to a grower saying, here is how many tomatoes you have in this crop row or how many flowers you have, here is how good your system is going at the current time, that's a lot of value to a grower that they can make better decisions on how to market their fruit, how 
different greenhouses are going, different crop rows are going. Maybe effectiveness. Yes. Maybe there's a disease. Maybe there's a certain ineffectiveness in one row that you want to address. Yeah. That's one thing. The next thing would also look at different labour-intensive tasks, such as harvesting the fruit when it's ready and mature, to uh, pruning or trellising. There's a lot of work in pruning leaves, pruning leaves at the right time to promote growth, but also trellising. Uh, there's a classic drop, lower and, and move uh, technique that they need for tomatoes to keep the vine growing throughout the greenhouse. Uh, in an agriculture environment, you can't predict where every leaf is, where every branch is, where every fruit is. You don't know that beforehand, so you need to have artificial intelligence or really good computer vision to know and sense where everything is, then make good decisions after that. Uh, we're also looking at yeah, estimating problems with fruit, such as mould growth. Uh, we're working with a strawberry farmer to detect early signs of mould, which we all know is a bit of a problem for strawberries. When you open that packet up at home, it can grow mould quite quickly. So if we can detect that really early, then we can prevent that problem. Yeah. The watermelon invention, where are you at with that? Uh, so we just finished a feasibility study to look at the different sensors required, and we're actually trying to get into the next phase um, and acquire a, a bit more funding to go to the prototype tool level so we can actually show a real uh, tool working in the field. We love to look at what are the main challenges and see if we can develop different prototypes to solve those problems. So overall, this work we've been doing in agriculture has been about six or seven years in development now. Um, in different different areas of ag, yeah. When it happens, it's going to lead to great efficiencies, and I imagine that it will happen, but when do you think and at what cost? It's hard to predict when it will happen. I think we're coming to a crossing point where the costs of robotics is coming down uh, and the drivers for farmers is going up for getting automation in their farms. I think the main gap here is getting companies to build robots that are purpose-built for farmers. Uh, and we've got robots that work in different industries uh, at the moment, but there hasn't been that sort of crossing divide to agriculture. We've seen a lot of work in open outdoor field environments like wheeled platforms, robot, like similar to a tractor. Autonomous tractors are, are a thing now, um, but in horticulture, where you have to pick fruit, well, there's a lot of labour-intensive tasks, that's a, a bigger challenge that we haven't really seen a commercial system yet. That's an interesting new world, and I do love this text to go along with that. It says, the farming robot, R2 weed through. R2 weed through. Get it? Boom tish. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for that text. You can keep them coming as well. And actually, oh, a lot more seriously in the in the world of text messages is this one, as we've been talking about the dairy industry today and the decline in the amount of milk being produced by Australian farmers, but also the decline in the amount of farmers producing that milk too in the latest figures from Dairy Australia. Farmer Joe says access to reliable, skilled staff has been the dairy industry's biggest issue for 10 years, not the lack of profitability, says Farmer Joe. So essentially saying they're working into the ground because they don't have the right staff in, rather than the ability to make money, which is an interesting thought. Thank you very much for sending that one through. Speaking of important information. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. 
Look, I don't love the music in that promo, but the information in it is important. We'd love some Victorian winners of Farmer of the Year. Uh, it's one of the great things ABC Rural does, and we get to celebrate individual farmers uh, from the student level all the way through to the legend, which is a more senior level of farming. And I'd love more winners to come from Victoria or any of our listening areas, southern New South Wales or uh, eastern South Australia. Shout out to you too if you're tuning in to our program today. would love to have you winning in Farmer of the Year. Please go and enter abc.net.au slash rural is a good place to go to learn more about that. And a quick programming note before we head off to livestock markets on the program today. Uh, tomorrow will be my last country hour for the year, but rest... Uh, sure, there'll be country hours uh, pretty much every weekday uh, throughout the summer period. The entire team at ABC Rural will be looking after you there. I'm heading off to a couple of other programs uh, to present over the summer period. So uh, tune in tomorrow if you want to hear my last show for the year. Not that it's really going to be anything different. We'll talk about important rural news and information as you come to expect, really. Speaking of important information, we've been talking a lot about the slide in sheep and lamb markets over the last few weeks. We might have had a a kick up in price today. Let's go straight there and find out. Chris Agnew is at Hamilton. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded 40,000 new season's lambs at Hamilton today, where the overall quality was equivalent to previous offerings. The market was very strong, with most weights being $10 to $15 dearer in comparison to last Monday's sale, including lambs back to the paddock. Top suckers so far have made to $245, as the sale is still in progress. New season's light lambs, 12 to 16 making from $90 to $135. Trade lambs, 18 to 22 $117 to $180 to average between $700 and 800 cents. The medium trade weights, 22 to 26, are making between 136 and 203, and they're averaging between 710 and 820 cents. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. So we've got prices up at Hamilton. Let's head across to the, the Horsham sales and see if uh, there's a similar pattern there. Graham Pimer has that information. Good afternoon, Graham. Lamb numbers eased to 5,950, and sheep supply at 1,250 head. The quality was mixed with heavy lambs in reasonable numbers. The usual buying group of tenant operated in a dearer market on the medium and heavy trade weights, up by $5 a head and selling firm to easier on the heavier weights. Medium and heavy lambs sold from $155 to $190. Heavier weights sold from $225 to $228. Restockers paid from $108 to $140. $43 to $76 for lighter drafts. And from 55 to 140 for shorn young lambs. The old lambs reached 180. The sheep quality was mixed with sheep selling to stronger demand on the light and heavy crossbred sheep. Merino ewes made to 91, heavy crossbred ewes sold to 120. Light trade weight lambs sold from 134 to 157, averaging 700 to 730. Medium trade weight sold from 155 to 178. They've also averaged 700 to 730. Medium weight sheep. Sold from $74 to $90 to average $380 to $400. Cents. Heavy Merino Hoggets made to $123. Graham Pine at Horsham from LA. Thanks very much for that, Graham. So a bit more mixed, I suppose, is fair to say, at Horsham as the strong market at Hamilton. One to keep an eye on, certainly, as we go through this summer period with warnings not only about 
what might happen to sheep and lamb prices, but also to cattle prices too as we head towards the store sale season. We'll go to Warrnambool Markets now to find out what's been happening in cattle markets. Tim Delaney has that for you. Good afternoon. Agents often 592 cattle at Warrnambool. Quote was improved from average to very good with a smaller selection of growing steers, which are mostly dairy bred. Regular field are buyer centred and an overall stronger market. Younger cattle sold mostly a few cents either side of firm. Beef cows improved by 10 to 15 cents. Dairy cows were from 10 to 20 cents a kilogram dearer. Bulls also sold to a dearer trend. Steer villas to the trade sold mostly from 400 to 478 cents. Heifers made 410 to 450 cents. And villas going on to feed sold from 370 to 465 cents a kilogram. Yearly steers to the processors made from 386 to 440 cents. The restockers and feeders paying from 380 to 452 cents a kilogram. Heifer yearlings for the trade were from 360 to 440 cents. The plainer sales 270 to 330 as the feeders paid to 420 cents a kilogram. Grown heifers sold from 330 to 414 cents, selling from unchanged to 4 cents dearer. The smaller selection of growers is they sold 10 to 15 cents a kilogram easier. Freezer manufacturing steers with covers as they sold from firm to 7 cents stronger. It's been Tim Delaney reported at MLA Warnable. Thanks very much for that, Tim. Lucky last in the market run today is Lean Gather Cattle. Uh, Brendan Fletcher has those details for you this afternoon. Good afternoon, Brendan. G'day Warwick, there were 80 fewer at 960 with the usual buying group operating in a mixed market. Quality was good with a limited selection of bullocks and a very good trade offering. Trade cattle slipped 30 to 50 cents, bullocks improved 10 to 15. Manufacturing steers sold firm, cows were mostly 5 to 20 cents dearer. With processors loading cows for an estimated 5.54 to 6.84 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 10. Bullocks sold from 4.30 to 4.46. Heavy Friesian steers 3.28 to 3.52. The crossbreds 3. 16 to 434. Most light and medium weight cows 200 to 330. Heavyweights 270 to 364. Heavy bulls 312 to 368. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Brendan. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Remember, you can email us if you have a story idea or you want to get in contact with any of the people producing and presenting the Country Hour over the coming weeks. And that is as simple as emailing countryhour at abc.net.au. That's country Country Hour at abc.net.au. And if you want your rural news and information at any other time of day, you can always head to our website, abc.net.au slash rural, where right there now you can find an interesting story. Another crop affected by a La Nina year in the most severe way possible. I'm talking about salt. Salt production has been severely impacted by Linnea. You can read about that now where Tasmanian farms had to find new areas to be able to produce salt because it's taking longer to dry out and create the product. Fascinating story. There's information there on the developing story we've been speaking about over the last week, which is the cuts or the changes to the Bureau of Meteorology with fewer meteorologists presenting radio crosses and community information officers taking over that role instead. You can also read a lot about farmers recalling scary close calls with health, where unfortunately many of you have similar stories. abc.net.au slash rural is where you find that information. And I'll catch you tomorrow on the Country Hour. I hope you have a great afternoon.